welcome back to PS We Have Orders, the military spouse podcast where we sit down and chat with the tiger in the room. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Perry. And today we have an amazing special guest. For those of you that were with us in season one, we brought on Megan Williams to talk about affinity fraud as far as MLMs go. We also learned during that interview that she is a therapist, trauma therapist. She's, she's, uh, a, profe- she's a professional in the uh, mental health field, which... She will, she also, when, when we, uh, talk to her on Zoom, she will go over her credentials, like what she's done. She's been in the field 17 years. That is, to me, mind blowing because that's just so much experience and the things that she has seen and dealt is just like, it's going to be, it's unbelievable. The information that she's willing to offer us and speak to us about is just amazing. Right. So we have her back today where... Going to be talking about terrible topics, the overall arching theme is PTSD, which we obviously want to talk about because it's such an overlying problem within the military, but we want to go ahead and give you a trigger warning for PTSD, we want to give you a trigger warning for trauma in general, for birth, for deployments, for anxiety, and for a brief mention of rape. So if these are things you are not ready to hear about, then maybe just go ahead and skip this episode for today and then catch us back on the next lighthearted episode. So, Shannon, are you ready? I am super excited. Season 3 interview with Megan Williams. Megan, welcome back to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be back. It's awesome to be here with you guys. Welcome back. I know. I know. I feel like since our last interview with you, you've become quite the big deal. (laughs) So I'm just like really honored. You're making me blush. Last time, for those of you that remember, Megan talked about MLMs and affinity fraud and her experience. And this time around, we're going to be talking about something very, very different. We're going to be gain, uh, leaning on her knowledge of psychology, her time as a therapist, and all the other amazing things she's ever done. And we're going to be talking about PTSD. Obviously, PTSD is something that is a big problem in the military. It's something that some of us as spouses have, but I think more commonly, it's something that we as spouses are dealing with our loved ones having PTSD. So our goal here is to have a great interview with Megan so we can learn more about it and then maybe learn a little bit of what we can do to support um, as, as our role as the spouse. So, Megan, I know you introduced yourself before, but if you want to give us just a brief uh, introduction of who you are, what your job is, what you've been doing, how long you've been doing your work in this field, that would be amazing. Um, All right. So I am a licensed therapist in the state of Arizona. Um, I have my master's in clinical mental health counseling. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in criminology, which is just random. And then I've been doing behavioral health since 2005. So this marks my 17th year working with behavioral health in a variety of different places and different populations and all the fun stuff. Do you get a medal after 20 years? So I was told at my first job, so my very first job was working with juveniles and residential treatment. I was told that if I made it past 18 months of working with juveniles in the field, that I would be a lifer because most people would quit at the year and a half mark. 
so the fact that I've been able to evolve and change and develop kind of what I consider to be therapist superhero mm -hmm, skills, okay. I think that's what's helped me maintain some longevity. But I'm definitely like, okay, when do I get to retire? Because yeah. that would be <laughs> like, when do I get to just take a break? Because I would, I would really like a break. That would be great. Never, never, not yet. Never. That's the never. whole world no. saved, no. right? Oh, no. Gosh. And so I kind of like, I came into it very oddly and I, and I don't know if I had talked about this before, but like my first career was actually in radio and I have a degree in broadcasting, which is very random. <laughs> okay. I, I did not know that. Yeah. I just ditched my aspirations of being on Broadway to do radio <laughs> because I was told that I was never going to look the way I needed to look in order to be a professional actress. And I said, okay, that was the late nineties. You got to remember 90210 and Melrose place were like the yeah. ideal of what everybody had to look like on TV. It's not like now. And I said, okay, fine. I'll go to, to radio. Cause I have a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> and then I um, think you also have the voice for it too. Okay. <laughs> some days. <laughs> so then, so I went back to school, um, honestly, to be a criminal profiler, which is why I have the degree in criminology. Mm -hmm. And while I was in school um, getting that degree, I, um, I really fell in love with teen court program that I'd become a part of. That was my internship. I did the screening with the kids. It was a diversion program to help keep them from, you know, continuing to commit further criminal activities um, and would keep them out of going to juvie jail. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I found that I really connected well with the kids. Um, and I think that's just because I've never looked like or acted like a typical adult. <laughs> so I think that really helps that, you know, they felt like maybe I was on their level. I don't know. So from there, I went and worked at juvenile residential from juvenile residential. I went and worked in um, corrections for five years, specializing in substance use. Um, and you want to talk about trauma, trauma in incarceration settings is just massive. I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, and then I went to work for inpatient substance use treatment, again, heavy trauma population. And now I've gone into private practice because I've earned it. And, <laughs> and I, and I want to do part-time work for full-time pay. So I do that. <laughs> but yeah, so like it's, it's, I kind of got into this weird place and every population I've ever served has been heavy with trauma. And when I first got into the field was when trauma informed care was just kind of starting and was more a theory than, um, a practical application. Is, um, I so in the room? trauma informed care, what, what does that mean exactly? So trauma informed care means that when you when you have a client and you're developing your case conceptualization for this client, you are going to err on the side that they have some kind of trauma, even if they haven't disclosed it. Okay, got it. And then everything you do, every intervention you have is going to bear in mind disclosed trauma that this person has had and view it from that framework of why. So especially with kids. So why is this kid acting out? This kid is acting out because there is trauma. I don't need to know the specific trauma necessarily. I just need to know that a lot of these responses that we're seeing are their coping mechanisms for traumatic events they've already experienced. That makes sense. And then in juvenile care, I got assaulted a lot because we got assaulted a lot because kids just don't have the prefrontal cortex, cortex formation to understand that you're not supposed to hit people. 
And um, yeah, I can only imagine. And um, so like when we would have to do physical interventions to prevent a child from harming themselves or others, we had to come at it from a very trauma informed position. So if it was a young female who had sexual trauma, male staff would not assist in the physical intervention. Makes sense. Right. If we could avoid physical intervention whenever possible, we would do that. The least restrictive, um, those kind of things, just to stay in line with knowing that the event of using a physical intervention is going to be kind of re-traumatizing in a way that we need to be mindful of, of what we're doing and why we're doing it and using it as a last ditch effort to control behavior. And then obviously we debrief afterwards and we talk about how they feel about it, how they feel about the staff that was involved with it. And it's always a staff member that wasn't involved kind of thing. And that's evolved a lot over the last 17 years. And it's, it's completely different from when I used to do it. Um, And I'm not even like, I can't even really speak too much on it because I haven't had to do that because there's a lot of emphasis on de-escalation now. Um, We try really hard to not go physical if we don't have to. Yeah, makes, makes sense. sense. Absolutely. Yeah. That could just and there, I mean, trauma, if you could avoid right? the trauma. Yeah. And it's traumatizing for staff too. That's like, smart. I can't smart. tell you how many times it, it just was, it, it was so hard to be involved in those situations. Um, and, and to, you know, understand that, you know, you have this hurt child that has no other way to express themselves but to act the way that they're acting and um, to have to be a part of that process of, of keeping them safe, but also creating harm at the same time. It's, it's, it's really hard. And, and some of the situations where I've had to physically intervene with kids has been really, really, really difficult um, and, and kind of shocking to the average person. And when I tell those stories, even to, to other professionals, they're like, wait, what happened? And I'm yeah. like, yeah, I lived through that. That was exciting. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine because like I like my brother my brother's autistic. So like obviously like they'll have behaviors and like the way that they handle things is very different from probably how they handled it, you know, 10, 20, how many years ago. And it's really interesting because it's like obviously the last thing you want to do is have to do a physical restraint, but it also comes down to them harming themselves or other people, that's where you kind of have to walk that fine. Oh my goodness. See, and that to me is like classic for what I deal with on a daily basis, right? You start your day and you're doing stuff and you're going in a direction and then all of a sudden somebody shits on the floor. Like, it's okay. (laughs) I definitely feel like that's kind of sometimes, you know, sometimes it's kind of life. Well, and I mean, I've, yeah, I I worked a fast food job for a hot minute, very, very short stint of time. And I remember someone ended up like coming and was like, oh yeah, um, someone pooped on the floor in one of your restrooms. And I just like looked at my coworker and I'm like, I'm not doing that. I don't get paid enough for that. You know, I, and I'm, and I'm going to tell one story and this is kind of gross and it's very sad, but one of the things that was learned behavior in one of the juvenile jails in Ohio in the late nineties, early two thousands was that if you um, rolled up your poop into little balls and threw it at the, the COs, that they would send you to treatment instead of to prison. All right. So. I mean, that's definitely a learned behavior <laughs> yeah. situation. Yeah. Like that, that I feel like almost comes down to survival though, too. It, um, it, it's a very manipulative thing. Yeah. Um, and, and it was one of those deals where once they had heard that somebody had done that, they were passing it down and then putting these officers. Oh, in yeah. 100%. Really situation. And I'm like, well, that's oh exciting. 
And I had a girl that was doing that that came into our facility and I kind of looked at her and I was like, you know, if you're going to do that, can you wait till I've gone home for the day? <laughs> Just do to the other staff, please, not me. She, and it's weird because she loved me. She hated almost every other staff that was there, but she loved me. So I was like, hey, look. I'm going to tell you what, if you can just wait until after I leave for the day, that would be amazing. <laughs> I'm out of here at 530 on the dot. You can wait till like 545, 6 o'clock and that's fine. Because she would always be like, when are you going to come and see me? When are you going to come and see me tomorrow? When are you in tomorrow? Blah, 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 blah. Because she liked to know when to depend on me being there. And yeah. I'm like, I'm not coming in if you do that. Like, I will go work with the boys. <laughs> oh she did goodness. not like that. <laughs> I like could only good. imagine because you're probably like one of the constants, but I feel like that kind of goes into like, you know, it almost like you seeing her is almost like a, um, like a, not a punishment, a, um, like a treat almost. Well, and not even so much of that when you, when you deal with people who have chronic childhood trauma and they have no safe adults no safe adult in their world. And you are firm, fair, consistent. You show up, you're the yeah. same person every single time they see you. They know what to expect from you. They know that you're going to have good, strong boundaries. They really don't want you to go anywhere because they won't know what to do without that because they need it. Makes sense. Yeah. And it's safety it's for consistency. them. Right. So, you know, they want that safety. And, you know, I, when I tell, when I, when I would tell them like, look, I want to be here for you and I will care about you no matter what but I'm not going to tolerate unacceptable behavior because I don't have to. If you're going to act that way to try to get my attention, you're not going to get it that way. Yeah. It makes sense. Like if you want to fully, make if sense. you want to be treated like a young adult that you are, then you need to act like a young adult. Otherwise I'm going to send in other people that aren't going to treat you that way because I'm not going to, I'm not going to do these things. And most of them, I just talk to them just like that. Just like, you know, you, yeah. you've earned the right to be spoken to like an adult. I'm going to treat you like an adult. Like you've seen more crap in your life than I can even fathom. Yeah. I'm not going to talk down to you, but yeah. So it's, I've seen lots of things in my career and, you know, uh, like I said, sometimes we just have to pivot. <laughs> I just pivot. That's life, though. I feel like that's the kind of yeah. life in general. And like one of the best things that like one of my professors that I had when I was going for my undergrad is one of the best like one of the things I absolutely love that she said was like when it comes to like the field of psychology is that you you can choose to laugh or you can choose to cry at something. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm like, and ever since she said that, I'm like, I really love that idea because I'm like, there's sometimes that you just need to get a good, ugly cry out. Mm -hmm. And then there's other times that you just start laughing because you're just like, what else, what else am I going to do in this situation? Everything else is kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. You know, the background's on fire. You're just like, yeah, you know, I'm just going to sit here and drink my, drink my tea for a minute and then I'll, I'll deal with the rest. Right. Well, and it's, it's the same, like when you think about, you know, we, people have notoriously known about first responder humor, cop humor, there's yeah. military humor, right? Because that ability to take shared experience and, and just have to laugh at it because if you yeah. don't like literally it will hurt you, it will wound your soul as a caregiver. And, um, and we need to be mindful of those things when we are caregivers, like we can't continue to harm our own psyche. Yes. We understand the gravity. And that's what I tell people like, yeah, 
we totally understand the gravity of the situation, but I'm going to tell you that I'm going to laugh because if I don't laugh, I, I don't know else, what else I would do. Yeah. You don't know necessarily your response would be. Mm-hmm. So I, I, this is kind of a question that's like going to go back to like more of your background since you said you've been in this 17 years or going on 17 years. Um, what even got you into this line of work? Cause people just don't stumble into psychology, let alone, therapy you know like that's not something you just like walk into one day at an entry level you have to go to school for you have to decide that's what you want to get into so do you mind just giving a little bit of tidbit on that so I mean when I started I started as direct care staff so I was just a person that hung out with the kids took them to groups did some groups myself did some case management kept them safe hung out with them that kind of thing right um and when I moved into working with um, juveniles who had substance use disorders, plus uh, some other co-occurring something, um, that unit required me to get um, certified as a substance use provider. Okay. Um, so at the lowest level possible um, in the state of Ohio. And then as I moved up, I helped open a girl, that was the boys dual diagnosis. I helped open up the girls dual diagnosis. Um when they opened that later on. Um, Mm -hmm. And when we went into that, I discovered that I actually qualified for a low level, like the, the associate level um, chemical dependency therapist, like Mm -hmm. license um, with a bachelor's. So I did that. Yeah. And then I moved. (laughs) So I was living in, I was living in uh, Columbus, Ohio, and I was working at a facility in Columbus, Ohio. And then I moved outside of Columbus to a town, like really the middle of nowhere. And um, the, the drive was an hour and a half to get to work. And that's a lot. Wow. That's a lot. Now I worked second shift, so it wasn't too horrendous. And and my ex and I would drive in together and I'd drop him off at work and then I'd go to work and then I'd swing by and pick him up when I was done with my shift. Um, but I wanted something closer to home. I wanted something that was a little different. Um, and so that's when I worked, went to work for a correctional facility in Ohio that is, it's not prison and it's not jail. It's in between. It's a community corrections. And they focus on low-level drug offenders to keep them out of prison and then to help the ones coming out of prison to get some skills to transition back into the real world. Um, so I did that and I was a counselor there and a lot of case management and that kind of thing. So that's kind of what shifted me. Um, but I've always just done really well running groups, being with clients, seeing patterns that other people don't see. Um, just being very open-minded and unconditional regard for people. Like I never looked at anybody like they were less than me. Mm -hmm. I never have felt like somebody's story was so bad that they couldn't do something different. Um, You know, I I think that it just all kind of came in. And when I got into recovery myself, um, when I, when I worked with juveniles, I, I hit my alcoholic bottom And then I moved into my own recovery. And that's kind of what drew me into working with substance use population, which is really common. Um, But I I just, it's just something that I've always kind of had inside me that I never realized was there until I started Mm -hmm. using it. And, um, and over time, it's just kind of evolved and changed. And I needed more challenges. And I was seeing more clients with all these other things. And like, it's, 
it's really hard to be a substance use provider exclusively. And um, especially with the increase of fentanyl in the United States. Yes, that is terrifying. Um, especially considering that that gets laced with so much. And it's like, uh, I think one of my posts or something for school I had to do, I ended up posting about how it's really bad, especially up in New England right now, or at least at the time it was really bad up in New England in particular, because they're lacing it with everything. And that's how you're seeing such massive spikes in ODs now. And it's just so frustrating and so sad because it's it's just one it's a I think it's synthetic isn't it yeah it's it's a synthetic and um, most of the stuff that we're seeing now is coming in from Mexico so it's even worse and it's kind of like it's it's just really bad and it's really hard to continue to lose people yeah and like it's I think what's one of the things I always thought was really sad is that people will be clean for so long and they'll relapse but because their tolerance is back down, they'll take something that they used to take or take a little higher and that's it. They're done. Mm-hmm. They overdose. Or even just a little bit. Yeah. If your tolerance is at zero and it's yeah. Just, yeah, it's, it's all just, it's so bad. And the pandemic, it was even worse. Um, yeah. I was actually going to ask you, how was it? Because oh, like sure. I said, like I'm still a student getting into this. So like I'm, getting it from like more of like a um, a- academic style of information, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm not seeing it from like what people mm-hmm. in the field currently are seeing. Cause I'm just hearing about it and reading about it. Um, so like a lot of folks lost their support systems cause everybody yep, had to go into lockdown that, yeah. and online meetings for 12 step fellowships and all of that were a great way for people to pivot. But a lot of yeah. folks just took it as a sign, like I can just isolate. And isolation yeah. is death for people yeah. with substance use disorders. Cause yeah. the, the main key component to substance use and most mental health conditions is connection. Yeah. To feel connected to, to other people, to life, mm-hmm. to circumstances, all of that. And um, and then a lot of folks were losing their jobs. A lot of folks yeah. didn't know how to cope with the collective trauma that mm-hmm. the world was experiencing. So they turned to more alcohol use and like, it's, it's just been, it's been a really sad couple of years. But I guess specifically coming back to the topic of the day of PTSD, could you tell us, I mean, you can talk covid specific related or just your experience i know you've had a lot of experience with alcohol abuse substance abuse which i feel like can be a result of ptsd for sure what's kind of your experience there personal professional and then if you could even go as far as to tell us what exactly is ptsd that would be amazing so what i typically do with with people that are coming in for for therapy and um aren't really sure like what's going on um, with their life and those kind of deals is I I break down trauma uh, in different categories. And I think that it's important for people to understand the difference between stuff. So the first type of trauma we have is called what I call big T trauma. So these are things that anybody else could look at and say, yes, that could impact somebody's psyche. So it looks like being around violence and witnessing it directly, um, being a sexual assault survivor, um, witnessing or being in a a horrific vehicle accident, um, major disasters like hurricanes or bridge collapses, um, those kind of things. It's something that anybody could look at and be like, man, that would be really hard to deal with in life. That's a big T trauma. 
little T traumas are things that can be experienced on a more micro level that might not necessarily have the appearance of being traumatic in and of themselves, but when they are repeated consistently over time, they form a trauma response and belief structure. So it looks like um, being called stupid when you're a kid over and over again. Um, you know, other name calling that happens. It looks like for my the people that I worked with uh, that were incarcerated, being called a number instead of your name, which doesn't seem on the surface yeah. like it'd be that big of a deal, but you lose your humanity piece by piece. Um, the last two years, we've all lived a collective little T trauma. You know, that fear of, and the initial fear of going out and is this person sick or are they not sick? Does it live on surfaces? Does it not yeah. live on surfaces? All of that stuff builds up over time and it creates a base level anxiety that most people can identify as anxiety. But what they don't yeah. know is, is that if you build up enough little T traumas, it becomes a big T trauma response. And that is when you honestly believe that the lion is in the room and about to eat you at all times. Um, and so PTSD is a disorder that comes when trauma symptoms last longer than six months. Anybody who experiences a big T trauma event for a little bit of time afterwards is going to have what we call acute stress disorder, which means that their nervous system is fried and it's going to have a lot of things coming out, whether it's depression, anxiety, hypervigilance, an exaggerated okay. startle response, those kind of so, things. So I have a question regarding that. So would you say if someone were, after dealing with a big trauma, were to almost like shut down, that would be a response? Okay. Yes, yes. That's an avoidance response. Okay. Um, they may like replay the incident over and over again yep. in their head. Um, they may have some depression. They may withdraw. They may um, disassociate a little bit. Those kind of things. And that's a perfectly normal response yeah. to a big T trauma. Like we have to honor that. And I don't think we yeah. do. I think we tell a lot of people just to suck it up buttercup. And like, that's not how that works. How can you tell someone who dealt with something like a massive trauma, like, yo, dude, you're fine, suck it up. Like, I I could not fathom the idea of telling someone who was like a sexual assault victim or anybody, anyone who dealt with a large trauma, it doesn't have to be just that, you're fine, buddy, suck it up. Like, I don't, I couldn't imagine that because, like, I don't know, I, could, I couldn't even imagine being told that myself. I am going to borrow from you, though, and the biggest response that I can give you for why would anybody tell them suck it up buttercup is the patriarchy. Yeah. It's for men. They are told to suck it up because of masculinity and toxic masculinity and gender roles and not knowing how to experience emotions. And for women, we're constantly told that our emotions are too much because they make other people uncomfortable. Um, I think that we're dramatic. Yes, I think that we're drifting away from it in certain situations, but like, uh, you know, with sexual assault survivors, they go into a police station and they immediately get asked, well, did you have a previous sexual relationship with this person? What were did you, you wearing? Did you lead them on? Did you give them any indication that this was okay? You know, were you drunk? Like they, they start asking in a way that's very, and even the, the 
evidence collecting of a sexual yeah. assault survivor is traumatizing in and of itself. Yeah. The other thing is, is that when small children talk about their sexual abuse, they are basically not believed the majority of the time because nobody wants to believe that the adult would do that. And most people believe the adult is right. So like even not, not even just in sexual abuse, but like how many adults side with teachers just because they're a teacher and don't believe their kid when their kid tells them that stuff is going on in the school or with a, with wow. the authority figures or with their peer group that's going unaddressed. How many parents believe the teacher and the administration before they believe their own kid? It happens so all the sad. time. Right. Another small, sorry, another small T trauma that I totally forgot um, is neglect. When you don't get your basic needs met, or yeah. if you're the kid that never gets called on in class, like those also create, so it's not even having things happen. Sometimes it's the absence of having things happen. Which makes sense. Cause like we all need to be nurtured. I'm sorry. I cut Perry off. I'm sorry, Perry. No, that's okay. I just, I always wanted to kind of bring it back. I mean, not back to PTSD. You're, this is all part of it. But you say that PTSD is when symptoms of a trauma extend yes. past six months. That would be like the clinical yes. definition. I know for military spouses, we are very aware of like, okay, maybe they have like a jump response to sounds mm -hmm. is a very big one or night terrors. I was kind of hoping maybe you could list out some of the condom common symptoms that maybe we know about, and then maybe even some of these uncommon symptoms that maybe we're not aware of that you see. Or less spoken of. So the first thing that you need to remember is, is that it doesn't always require an external trigger for that person to have a reliving response. So they could just be playing the tape over and over again in their head. Okay. They might not have a full on flashback, but they may have the remembering that's happening a lot. Um, so when they seem distant or detached or depressed or like they're just zoned out, that could be what's happening. Disassociation is huge with trauma. And it starts with even small, like we all disassociate daily for small things. If you've ever been driving and ended up somewhere and you don't know how you got there, but you got there safe, you went on that like autopilot, that's a yeah. form of disassociation. Mm -hmm. But if you're sitting and you're trying to talk to a person and they just are not hearing you, they are not hearing you, they are not hearing you, they're in a disassociative place and they're probably having a remembering or a reliving experience. Um, some people disassociate to avoid those external triggers. Um, smells are a big one. And people yeah, forget that. that, right? Smell is the strongest sense tied to memory. So while you might, yes, loud sounds, you know, gunfire, that, the, that association always happens, but the smell of fireworks. Yeah. Right. Anything that might have that gunpowder. Gun yeah. For, you know, some people it's, so I had a client who was, uh, she, and I'm going to, I'm going to be kind of, I'm just going to use the term for it. She was raped in a back alley and it was right after a restaurant had dumped its mop bucket for the night. And there was a distinct <sighs> smell of bleach in the alley this woman could no longer be around bleach. And anytime she smelled bleach, she went into an automatic response. So those types of things that we don't think about that people will encounter on a daily basis, and there's no way to really control it, right? Yeah. You know, there's that the hypervigilance, which is that head on a swivel, not really sleeping, sometimes is mistaken for ADHD. Yeah, I can see that. 
but it's that, that constantly being on edge and feeling like I have to, it's sometimes checking behaviors. I have to make sure the front door is locked. I have to make sure the oven is off. I have to make sure that the car is locked. Like I have to check the back seat before I get in. Um, a lot of military personnel have to sit with their back to the wall so they can see the entire room. Yeah. But that's, that's a thing that people have to do for safety, right? Um, certain colors can sometimes trigger things. But again, it's not always external. And survivor guilt is a very common symptom of PTSD. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's that idea that I feel like a piece of crap because it should have been me or I could have done more or, you know, yeah. if I would have said something or done something different, then yeah, I, this would I always refer to it as like the woulda, coulda, shoulda vibe mm-hmm. of like, I could have done more. I should have done more. What if I did this instead? It's almost like the butterfly effect of like when you kind of get into that mood of like, I could have done more. I could have done something different. Like, I feel like that kind of happens to people even with like just standard anxiety, though. Mm-hmm. It does. Um, but most standard anxiety is a mild trauma response. Yeah. It's all fear based. It's an exaggeration of that midbrain response to things. The amygdala is just hyperactive. Um, and so when you get somebody who has other trauma and then you add more substantial trauma on top of it, that's that's when we talk about CPTSD, so chronic post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And it 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 just kind of doubles and triples and quadruples over time. It's also why can I, yes. Can I ask? <laughs> can I ask? Like because <laughs> I don't know. PTSD is symptoms that last more than six months. Would you be able to tell me what is like the standard almost like for PTSD? When you say chronic, that means more than X amount of time. Is there a standard amount of time? The symptoms tend to fade. I really don't know. Is there like people if they go and they try to treat their symptoms, do their symptoms ever go away? Can PTSD be cured? So um, chronic PTSD is usually if there are more than one trauma events that we're dealing with, right? So like a one-time trauma event can result in PTSD, so like a car accident. And they didn't have anything else that happened during their lifetime that would be considered post-traumatic stress necessarily other than just living because living in and of itself can be traumatic. Like life is just traumatic. Like I think we would all be better off if we just realized that, that living can sometimes just be the most traumatic thing that we do. Yeah. So if they don't have that, their PTSD is just garnered to that one specific event or maybe two or three specific events, but that are not long-term. So, and chronic is when it's a lot of trauma, little T's, big T's over a long course of life. So somebody who um, experienced childhood trauma, who then ended up in domestic violence relationships, who then ended up in a mad car accident, who then ended up being sexually assaulted, like that would create chronic PTSD. The other thing that creates chronic PTSD is the lack of addressing of PTSD in an adequate amount of time. So somebody who goes years before addressing these kind of longer term traumas until like it just gets so bad that they have no other choice but to deal with this stuff. And this is where we see a lot of people covering up their trauma with substances. We see them covering it up with workaholism, exercise addiction, food, 
Um, we see them covering it up with anger, um, some depression, like they just never really address the trauma. And, and I see this a lot with my clients when I have them come in for my, for an intake, like one of the questions I have to ask is what have you been through that you would consider traumatic? And a lot of times people will give me pieces of stuff, but like about five or six sessions in when they, they know I'm safe, that's when they dump the big thing on me. And I'm like, I knew it was in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and part of that is just because I've been doing this for so long that I can sniff it out really quickly. Um, but I also know that people will give me small tidbits to see what I do with them. So they'll give me the trauma yeah. that might be the less emo least emotionally distressing for them to start talking about and then work their way up to tell me about the sexual assault in college or, yeah. you know, the, the relationship they're in currently where their significant other treats them like crap. Um, not even necessarily hands-on, but like talks to them terribly. Yeah, emotional or, abuse, yeah. You know, all of that. Um, or, you know, turns their kids against them, those kind of things. Um, so it, it it takes time, right? Because there's there's got safety has to be established first. And that's a symptom that I don't think people really understand is that some of what trauma does is it gets the person to doubt themselves and their experience. And so sometimes somebody who has been a safe person for them in the past, they have to reevaluate, well, are they really safe for me? So this is where spouses may struggle because they've been a safe person for their person. And now all of a sudden they're being treated as if they're not safe. As if they're a stranger almost. Right. And that detachment and, and you know, when, when we care about somebody, when we love somebody, when we share our lives with somebody, we want to hear about the stuff that they're going through and, and do what we can to be there for them. Um, and when they don't give that to us, but we know it's in there, it gets very frustrating. Yeah. And it, it almost creates this anger and resentment on the part of the support person that is counterproductive for what is needed in that situation. So a lot of times, one of the things I will tell people is like, just sit with them. If you know they're going through something and they can't talk about it because they don't have the words, or they don't want to put that on you, just sit yeah. with them and let them know that it's okay for them to fall apart in that moment and just sit in the discomfort and in that space. Cause that's huge. Yeah, that's, that's one thing that I didn't really realize until I got more into the military spouse community, specifically the deployment pages and things where deployment is scary for everybody, you know, but integration can be just as difficult and has the integration if it's not done can ruin relationships. Yeah. And I see that time and time again is he's been home for five months. He's a totally different person. He won't talk to me. He's a stranger. It's awful to see that. And then, it, you know, you'll even see some saying, Hey, I, I'm leaving the page because I'm no longer a military spouse because our relationship handled deployment, but couldn't handle reintegration. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying is even if it's diagnosed or not, maybe that separation could be a trauma response. Yes. And the other thing to be mindful of, and, and this is what I tell my first responder spouses that I work with, you live with the fear of your person never coming home. Yeah. Every time you see them, you live with that thing in the back of your head that tells you that they might not come back again. So sometimes when they do come back and they're, they're moving on and, and you're looking at starting life differently, 
that relief and that push and that pressure that is no longer present continues in different ways. Okay. What are some of those ways maybe you've seen it manifest or if you give an example? Kind of that push, pushing the person, right? Well, you're out now, so you should, you should be relieved and you should have a job and you should feel successful and you should feel all the things that might not be what that person's genuine experience is or you know, that idea, like, I'm so relieved now. So let's go out in public and let's do all the things. And, and so, and I hate to liken it to this, but most of my experience in this kind of realm is people leaving a prison situation and they're reintegrating back into society. It's kind of the same. You're told when to eat, how to dress, what's okay. You're yelled at a lot. Um, Other people kind of dictate you and tell you that you're property, right? You realize that your life is not your own. Now, all of a sudden I'm out in the real world and I have all these options and I'm overwhelmed by all the options. Yeah. And a lot of times spouses, family members don't understand that. They don't understand how options for somebody with, especially with trauma can be paralyzing. Yeah. And that identity loss. So anytime we lose a piece of our identity, we go through a grief process. So somebody that goes from being active to being a general citizen, they're losing an identity piece that's core to them. And that shift from active military to veteran, and even the way the military treats you when you go from active to veteran, that transition is super hard. It's super hard. And if you're not going through it because you're just relieved that I no longer have to have this fear of my spouse being killed at any point in time, it's hard to understand that they are now losing a large part of who they are, even if they are like really ready to get out. That's been their identity. I think you just gave me really big insight as to why there's so many retired military buffer stickers. I never understood that because I was like, I'm never going to get a retired accountant bumper sticker. That's stupid. And I did, but that's not my identity. You're, you're totally, yeah. I've never thought about that. Look at, look at you go teaching me things. But stuff. to a degree, you're, you being an accountant is part of your identity. It's your work identity. It's one facet of who you are as a person. You have other things that round that out. When you are active military, your only identity is active military. Yeah. Even if you're father, so, wife, mother, sister, daughter, whatever, even if you have all those other relationships, the primary identity that takes precedent over all others is your identity as active military. Makes sense. Because I mean, that's why they have so many, um, they'll have programs for when people are getting out, like, to take, yeah, so that they can, there's like an eight week program. Yeah, so that you can take, so you can transition out and then also be prepared to it. And like, that's one thing that always blows my mind when I see like uh, people that only do like four or six years and they get out and I'm like, do you have any plans? Do you have an idea what you're going to do? And they just go, no, I'm just going to go home. And I'm like, okay. Like, I feel like that transition though, from like, basically like, let's say you join at like 18, 19, you head out to the world, you are active military for four to four to six years, a whatever, how many it may be. And then you just get out and go back to your mom's basement or you're back to your parents. Yeah. I feel like that'd be a really hard transition. And like, I know for me personally, independence is massive for me. Like I'm someone who fears the loss of independence because to me, that's just such a large part of me of like, I like to be independent. I like knowing that I can make decisions for myself. And the idea of 
thinking I could possibly move back in with my mom and be basically like as if I was 16 again would just blow my head apart because I just don't think I could fathom the idea of my mom being like, all right, come on, laundry time. You're like, I just couldn't imagine that. I say that with peace and love with my mom, but like she has a way of doing things. And I know if I go back to living with her, I would have to go back. I would have to conform back to her way of living. And but I'm think about how habit. comforting that is for somebody who is living in uncertainty and who True. is living with this lack of safety because even yeah. if moving back in with a parent or into a situation that isn't the best but it's familiar yeah that breeds a lot of comfort and yeah and when you look at people who sign up when they're 18 19 20 they don't even know who the hell they are to begin with no and i say that with all the respect in the world but up until about Age, so so most identity isn't really great until about 25, 26, when the brain kind of solidifies. But then at 30, we go through another identity shakeup. At 40, we go through another identity shakeup. 50, 65. Set, like, we, we go through all these identity moments. But literally, when you leave high school, at that point in time, when you leave high school, your entire identity shifts in a massive way that's a huge grief process. And you have these kids making the decision to dedicate their life to a job where in the job description, it says, Hey, oh yeah. Hey, by the way, you could die. Yeah. Could, you have no control over where you go. You're not allowed to talk to people that are your support people for how many weeks while you're in boot camp, unless it's like a small snippet of time. Right. They spend a lot of time breaking down what little identity you already have. Because that's the nature of it. Yeah. Right. Not to say that it's wrong, but that's the nature of the job. Yeah. It sounds like boot camp is like a big T trauma. Honestly. I mean, I, and I don't know because I've never been through <laughs> it. But like, if I'm going to go by what I know from Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> very official sources I mean, here. Arlie very Ernie, official. Like, but I mean, my, my older brother went through most of boot camp. Um, he got a medical okay. discharge out of boot camp. From what I remember when he came home, I think he really struggled with people telling him what to do. Because um, yeah. most of us don't really like people telling us what to do. Uh, to the level that you get told what to do in boot camp, no matter how yeah. it's being told, right? Yeah. Like most of us don't really like somebody telling you, yeah, no, you got to keep doing this even though it hurts. Guess what? You get to do more now because you asked a question, right? <laughs> like, yeah. like you're going to go till you puke and then you're going to go some more. Like, I'm sorry. The only other people I know who do that are CrossFitters. And like, I can't, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I, I oh can't, anybody that delights that much in throwing up because of the exercise that they're doing is something that's beyond me. And I have mad admiration because I am not that person. Like I'm not, not that person. Um, so if people are doing cross, they're like, I'm a cross, like, cool, you do you. But like, for real, what's up with Pukey the mascot? Anyway, um, <laughs> I digress. Um, but, th but the other thing too, and this is something to remember is, is that physical trauma is also trauma. So just because like, I say I break my leg, my leg is now weaker in that spot than it ever was before. Right? If I uh, have a, a lacerated kidney, and they have to sew it back up, my kidney is weaker than it was before. 
and and a lot of these places, like when we talk about the physical intensity and the the way that the food creates digestive issues, all of those things that contributes lack of sleep, all of that contributes. And then what happens when you have somebody who has significant PTSD, they end up repeating a lot of those things that feel familiar to them. So they might not sleep, they might not eat very well. Um, they might do like prepper uh, behaviors, because you never know what's going to happen, right? They've got a bug out bag ready to go. Uh, my grandfather was notorious for making, he made this holster that slid in between the two mat, like the mattress and the box springs in their bedroom. Yeah. And like the gun, his handgun was off to the side. And my, he almost shot my grandmother one night in the middle of the night when she was coming down the hallway. And he was a decor, a highly decorated World War II vet. Wow. Yeah. So like yeah. we're talking even 40, 50 years after and he still has those moments because our World War II vets were not treated the way they should have been for their trauma no. on any level. No. Yeah. Really, that kind of leads me into my next question is as far as treatment, like what can you as a therapist do for treatment and what is there that maybe spouses could do as support to, I mean, obviously we're not the therapist. We can't do the hard stuff. They have to do the hard stuff. But what's almost like we could do to like mitigate these symptoms? I don't know if that's the right word, but what, like, what can we um, do? So the biggest thing is, is that encouraging, encouraging them to have the support, to talk with people who will understand whether it's a peer support group um, or an actual trained trauma therapist. Um, I know that the VA has lots, um, but I don't know how prolific they are on bases to have actually trauma trained individuals um, more than a, hey, I got to patch you up and get you compartmentalized enough to go back to work. Yeah. You know, I, I think the biggest thing is, is having some patience and some just understanding like that their process may take longer than you want it to and that that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me, one of the things that I do is I do a form of treatment called accelerated resolution therapy. And what it does is it utilizes eye movements similar to the way that our brain processes information during uh, dream sleep, during REM sleep. Um, and what I do is I have them visualize the event or the day, like their typical day of their symptoms. But typically for like trauma events, we do the day or the, the event. And they visualize it and, and we pay attention to what happens inside their body somatically to better understand where the amygdala is firing. And they're visualizing it anyway. So it's not like I'm asking them to do something that doesn't already happen. Yeah. Um, so we go through it and we break it down into digestible chunks and we process down any body emotions using eye movements. And then we replace that imagery with something else because Trauma isn't stored in logic. It's not stored in this big frontal part of our brain. It's stored in the back part of our brain. That's very animalistic and emotion-based. So a lot of times when people come at somebody who's working from their amygdala, from that emotional brain, they um, want them to be logical. And the reality is, is that when they are in that place, they cannot be logical. If somebody is more prone to anger responses, I have them kind of move with those in more appropriate ways. 
boxing classes, punching bags, throwing ice cubes at things, going to the rage rooms where you can beat the crap out of stuff with baseball bats. Amazing. Um, That sounds amazing. I've been wanting to go. Tearing up phone books. You know what I mean? Like doing something that moves with that energy to move that energy out. Because sometimes we reach a point of no return and we can't just sit down and calm and do meditation and go inward. Like, nope, sometimes we just got to go to the outburst, but we control the outburst in a way that's appropriate, right? I love doing primal screaming with people. Sometimes I'll do um, some gestalt work with folks where I'll be like, you pretend I'm the person you want to yell at. Or I put the empty chair in front of them and be like, yell at the chair, go for it. Say what you got to say. Use the words you got to use because like, I don't care because it's not about me. Um, EMDR is another modality that uses eye movements that helps a lot with post-traumatic stress. Um, The difference between EMDR and accelerated resolution that I use is that I can get quicker resolution for trauma events than EMDR does. Yeah. That's, that's multiple sessions. That's yes. I can. Yeah, I can. I think it's like eight. It, it depends on the person. It depends okay. on the situation. It depends on how quickly their processing moves. Um, with ART, I can do a trauma event in one session and get pretty much full resolution. Wow. Yeah, that's a big difference than it multiple is. sessions. It is that could possibly take months. And EMDR is amazing, especially for folks that have chronic PTSD, because yeah. it, it builds on this idea of changing the way you view yourself, the way you view the world, these unhelpful belief structures. Mm-hmm. ART provides immediate symptom relief for one traumatic event. And what's really cool is if I can get somebody within the first 30 days, I can make it so that they never develop PTSD. Which is nice. Yeah. Um, So it's possible to fully recover, but not like in the way that you think. So trauma changes the way our brains and our bodies react. It just changes the brain chemistry. So what we do is, is we put it into remission. It can be, you can be pretty much symptom free or management of all of your symptoms on a daily basis really, really well. And then something could happen, like some stressful event. It doesn't have to be a trauma, but just a lot of stress can create a resurgence of some symptoms, which then further treatments with a trusted professional can rework those symptoms back down. I have people that come in and do spot checks a lot because something stressful happened and now we're experiencing the anxiety, the nightmares, all the things again. Okay, well, let's work through that right? Because it's not about the originating event anymore. It's just that's what the brain knows to do when it's stressed out. Because that's how it is now hardwired. Okay. Does that make sense? sense. That totally makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, for sure. I just I'm thinking from like, a spouse's perspective, and she and I have both been like lucky enough that we've never had our spouse be deployed. But Having a spouse deployed, it sounds like, from what you were talking about, could be a whole bunch of little T traumas. Maybe the trauma is parenting alone, giving birth alone. That seems like a big T trauma, honestly, but I've never also never had a kid. Um, not knowing, maybe they can't communicate with you. Every time you're saying not having an action could be a trauma, yeah. not getting communication, not knowing where they are, not having contact while they're on a boat. So if you were to take a spouse's like cumulation bunches of little t traumas 
and then maybe a huge trauma from somebody being deployed, and then you're and then you're throwing in reintegration. How does that even work with both people trying to process what they're going? Because maybe if the spouse, the support system, is trying to heal from their trauma, and they're trying to heal from their trauma, like what? How? What? In a perfect both world, do individual do work, and then they do couples work. I was actually just about to say uh, couples therapy and definitely okay. therapy. <laughs> Family therapy if there are children yeah. that are old enough to understand what's been going on, because that's the other thing that people forget is that kids that grow up in a household understanding that their parents may never come home develop high levels of anxiety around relationships. I can see that. I can totally understand that. Like that makes sense. Like I know for like what uh, what me and my husband dealt with when he went to boot camp, he was only able to call back to me like only a handful of times. And the things that was really rough for both of us is that at that time I think he was only able to call like four times, maybe five at most. And I missed a majority of those calls. And it was obviously never on purpose. And like, I remember, like, I remember just crying because I I missed the call, the one call I was going to get. And I remember it was super traumatic for me because he was away when it was right around my 18th birthday. And like, all I remember, I remember sitting outside because I worked at a spirit Halloween at that time. My gosh. And I remember at one point just sitting outside, just crying into my knees because I'm like, I just want to see him. I just want to hear that he's okay. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being a very traumatic situation for both me and him because, like, you know, he was hearing from his buddies, like, oh, she ain't picking up. She ain't going to pick up. She ain't even going to be there at the end. You know, hearing that from, like, the people he was going through it with. And I can only imagine how rough it was on his side. And I know for me it was – I just – I remember just being so emotionally – just messed up from like missing majority of those calls. And a lot of times it was, I forgot my phone at home when I went to work. Like dumb stuff like that, that you wouldn't even think about. Like nowadays I'm really good about never leaving my phone behind, but that was almost 10. Oh yeah. Over 10 years ago. That's just, I guess my little input from that situation. So I know uh, one thing we were kind of curious about was any experiences that you can share in your many years of, being a professional in the field, dealing with stuff like this. Like, is there anything that obviously we understand like HIPAA rules and all that? Is there anything that you could share? Any experiences? Um, so, I mean, the biggest thing that I can, I can tell folks is to like, just in general to, to be mindful mm-hmm. that other people's processes might not look like your own. Um, and that while somebody might, seem like they're taking a long time to heal and it can be hard to watch them go through that. Um, Their path is their path and having somebody who lets them not be okay and gives them time to kind of figure out what, what's going to work for them and not work for them um, is really important because otherwise we then become, we start wandering into this world of feeling invalidated and like my experience isn't good and hiding and that suck it up buttercup kind of thing, right? And sometimes the things that we do um, are just not helpful. And, and it's okay to say, you know what, I realized that what I said or what I did was not helpful. I'm dealing with my own stuff. Again, I fully advocate for folks, especially those that are reintegrating, both parties go to individual counseling and then they do couples work to learn how to communicate again, especially if they've been apart for a long period of time. Um, because you are two totally different people. You've been framed by your experiences 
in different ways. And it's important to learn how to do that dance again. And again, children, they need support too to deal with mom or dad being gone, mom or dad coming back, um, all of the things that they might be experiencing. And, it, and there's no shame in that. There's some amazing child therapists that really do a great job with helping kids navigate this stuff so that they have a better understanding. Um, the other thing that I think people need to be mindful about is the, the identity of hero, the hero complex that tends to happen, right? Because when you think of a hero, you think of like the Avengers or Superman and they don't show any trauma, even though they deal with trauma all day long. Um, you know, like some people get caught up in that and in the way that other people view them and and that kind of thing. And, And this is also a big piece of why veterans and a lot of other, you know, conflicts and things didn't talk about it because they also didn't want to get stuck in this place of being viewed as a hero for something that's a lot more complex and sticky, right? Like it's really the, one of the only times in life where we congratulate people for killing somebody else. And that's yeah. important. Yeah. And like, that's the only time it's a good thing. Like, that's such a weird change of perspective. It's like sex before marriage if you grow up in a very, like, conservative household. It's like, sex will kill you. And then you get married and it's like, you need to have babies and you have, like, whiplash. Like, that's something I feel like Shannon and I can at least relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there's that huge shift and all of a sudden this thing that's bad every other time ever is now a good thing. And that's what people ask you. Oh, did you kill anyone? And what if the answer is yes? How do you talk about that? How does how did your yeah. 18 years in your small town town in Indiana prepare you to answer that question right. to every person that wants to shake your hand because they did four years back in Nam? Right. Sorry. I have no. You're, no, you're fine. And see, this is that thing, right? That fire that comes up, that stuff that comes up because we can see how harmful this is, right? Because it, it's harmful. And it's just like, so I do a lot of grief work. I do a lot of complicated grief work. One of the things that I know is, is that when we experience certain situations that are intensely uncomfortable, we say things that are very unhelpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the thing. So yeah. One of the things that I think I can share, I can, I can share it peripherally because I'm not going to give identifying information, but I, I've had a client in the past few years who um, witnessed uh, a school shooting. It's horrible. Um, was in the room, whole nine, right? My God. And was just outside the room when the, the shooter ended their life. Wow. And carried that. For a very long time. I can only imagine. And didn't realize how much it was really impacting day to day until the last couple of years. And we did some ART accelerated resolution therapy around it. And it was gone. It was gone. It's really cool when I do trauma work with people because I don't have to ask them about it. Like that's the cool thing about ART is we don't have to talk about it. Um, I get to watch their entire, like, I see the tension. I can see the emotion. I can feel it. It's palpable, right? When we're visualizing. And then I watch their face relax and I watch their whole body relax and they may start crying, but I can see when their body is moving through the tension and then when it just completely leaves them. 
And for me, that moment is why I do what I do. That moment makes carrying other people's heavy loads so worth it when I can unburden that from them. You know, and a lot of folks struggle to talk about the things that they know are bothering them because, you know, the, the shoulds of society. My reality is, is that if something is impacting you to the point where you feel anxious, you're depressed, you're angry all the time, you're irritated, you're on edge, you're having trouble sleeping, talking to somebody about it who can literally never tell anybody that it was you who said those things to them Mm -hmm. is extremely cathartic, right? I tell people all the time, I'm a paid secret keeper. Like that's what I do. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one of those things like I view it as a high honor to be able to walk with people and help them carry these things and, and letting them know that like they have made it through 100% of their, their worst days. Yeah. Like, they have. 100% success rate. Right. I say that to yeah. people too. Yeah. I feel like 100% yeah. success rate every day. Yes. Good job. Um, but I think that the, the biggest piece is destigmatizing when other people are having conversation. Like if you're if you're out on base and or around other people in your your spouse community and they're kind of downgrading somebody for not getting over something fast enough or depression or whatever they're just so angry all the time like having that moment with them and being like that's really not okay clearly this person's going through something and your judgment is not going to help them heal from it because i think in general society we don't do enough of that either right so when we look at somebody who is on the spectrum who has an autism disorder and we see how, how their quirks manifest. We judge them in harsh ways that are inappropriate. Like, no, this person has something that they can't control. Calm down. Right. PTSD is the same thing. Somebody has something that they can't control. An organ in their body is not functioning the way that it was developed to function. So we need to treat it with the same level of destigmatizing as we would for somebody whose pancreas stopped working and they had to use insulin. Right. Or if they lost a leg, you wouldn't be like, it's been six months. Can you just walk again, please? Right. Yeah. Or, you know, broke their back. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I always feel like there's been a handful of times, like, when people, like, talk about depression. I'm like, you have to remember from, like, there's a clinical, like, depression is an imbalancement of chemicals. That it's something that people cannot control, an imbalancement of chemicals. And I'm like, you have to remember if someone is seriously going through stuff like that, you can't just be like, just stop being sad. Just get up over yourself. You're fine. Right. That's not going to change a chemical imbalancement. And one thing I've reminded other people that I'm like, even if they get medication for, you know, something along the lines of that, I'm like, not one medication is going to be the first fix done. Like sometimes t- it takes people years to find the proper medication. And then the greatest part about medication is that you eventually grow an intolerance. You got to change it again. And then you're back on the journey of this ups and downs, ups and downs with medication. I'm like, and that's where people need to just show a little bit of compassion. If you see someone's having a really rough day, instead of being the person that pokes them and can possibly set them off or trigger or whatever word you want to use at that point, instead of being part of the issue, be part of the solution. Just be like, hey, are you okay? You know, like, or just give them space to be a grumpy butt in their own direction. Right. <laughs> you know, if you if you don't have the energy to engage, then don't be the person that sets them off, though, either. Give them their space to go do their thing. And also, one of the things that I forgot to mention is that sometimes folks get overstimulated 
Yes. Especially in large groups or public places. Right. Um, and so one of the things that it, as, as a support person to be able to do for them is to notice that they're having yeah. a hard time and say, Hey, let's, let's leave. Let's just go. It's I've okay. Let's just times. go. I've, I've found since living overseas, like, especially when we were in Germany, the amount of people is so different than like when we go back stateside. And like, for me, I had an issue growing up where like audio processing was a rough time for me. I would actually have times pushing out other things happening in the background for me to not be able to pay attention to the person in front of me sometimes. So when I went from living from like being overseas where I can drown out people behind me because you're speaking a language I don't understand. Mm -hmm. So they're going back and forth. I'm like, I don't know what they're saying. I keep on moving. But when I go back stateside and everyone's speaking, it's my brain I thought was going to explode the first time I went to Walmart for the first time being back stateside. It's so true. It is not something you think about. And I remember like, I think it was my mom who said, she's like, I saw, she's like, I could see it in your face. You're just like shutting down because your brain was just running in five different directions and you're hearing 15 different conversations. She's like, and with already having a previous issue with something like that, imagine on top of it is just, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know. Like for me now, if when we go back stateside, I'm like, I need to go to places at the lowest point of people because otherwise I just get super overwhelmed. And for the longest time, I've been running into the issue even here at the commissary where I prefer to go when there's less people or less people with like all of their kids running through the aisles screaming and crying because it overwhelms <laughs> me. And I'm like, I, I just want to get in and get out, please. You know, like, I don't know. I just get not yeah. icky feeling, but like that overwhelmed, like shutting down or like I get the anxiety build up. Mm-hmm. Well, and as somebody that didn't ever have an audio processing problem and is extremely extroverted and loves energy and attention and blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, I can still speak to that, that it was like very noticeable. Like night and day. Overseas is almost relaxing because you're not constantly hearing all these other things. And when you do hear an American family, you immediately think, yes, you're like, oh, yep. Yep. Okay. And then you come back to the States and you're just like, okay, you have to actively tune it out again. And like, now that I've been back in the States for four years. Yeah. Okay. I'm pretty good at just about my life. But no, I mean, that's, I mean, I would say like a low basic form of reintegration though is, is something that the very teeny tiniest level like I myself has experienced and I can't imagine if instead of you know just words it was trauma everywhere well and and when that kind of ties in is is like understanding that having the welcome home party might not be a good idea no those can be so overwhelming though because then you feel like you're being pulled in 15 different directions to talk to people that you a haven't seen in a couple years or people you know it's just it's a different dynamics and i don't think everyone always understands it's not a blanket situation well because the welcome home party isn't for the person coming home no it's never for the person coming home yeah right like that's not that's not how that goes that's for everybody else and it's like it's convenient because then they don't have to go around and see everybody well you know what maybe going around and seeing people in more digestible chunks yeah (laughs) instead of all at once like bum rushing you asking you to tell the same things over and over again and like it's uh, yeah no i'm i people all day long when i don't have to people i prefer not to people and and that's the piece like my my husband is an extreme introvert he's very much a homebody and i always give him permission to not do stuff with us 
and yeah. like you don't have mm-hmm. to go it's cool you can stay home like it's good yeah. i'm not it's like you want me i'm, I'm not even mad like i would rather yep. have you mm-hmm. stay home and be chill and have a great day than go out into a place where you're gonna get angry or you're gonna be on edge like mm-hmm. um so that's the other thing that i wanted to say real quick and i recommended it to shannon before we started but um there's a book called the body keeps the score and it talks about how trauma stays stored inside of our systems. It's heady. It's very much written for professionals, not for like general people. A lot of it is, um, but it's a really good way to fully understand how trauma has these like ripple effects throughout life. And it, I, I found it very beneficial for spouses that I've worked with, especially my clients with chronic PTSD. Like, this is why they're reacting this way, because they are projecting the unsafeness onto you. Like, it gets stored in our system, not just our brain. It can also get stored in our body systems because it's physiological. So it's important to understand how these processes work if you really want to know. Um, the other book that I always recommend that's less heady, has some of the same kind of biology physiology stuff in it is called forward facing trauma therapy. And it also kind of walks through some practical steps of how to do grounding and to pull yourself back together in the moment. And it's very user friendly for people that don't have a background in mental health training. Okay. So somebody like me. All right. So Megan, I do have a question. Is there anything, because I know you said you've been on quite a few other podcasts, is there anything you would like to, because we're kind of getting to the end of this amazing interview. I know we could probably talk to you for many, many <laughs> I got to have dinner at some point. We got six minutes left before I got started a new invitation, yeah, exactly. so let's wrap it up. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I want to ask you, is there anything you'd like to plug? Is there anything you want to, like, any ending remarks? Um, you know, I, I've done some stuff. I did write a book. I wrote a self-help workbook for folks that are leaving multi-level marketing. Um, It does talk about the trauma that's inherent in that business model. Um, And it's available on Amazon uh, via ebook. So through Kindle, and it's also available all over the globe through Amazon's publishing. Um, And that's, it's called cutting ties healing after MLM. Um, if folks want to go to my socials, it's linked in there as well through my link tree. So, um, my Instagram is at that zone of life. Um, my TikTok is Megan zone of life. Um, I won't add you on Facebook unless I know you because Facebook <laughs> is Facebook. Um, I'm not a fan. I have it because I have to for some networking things. Um, but the the book also yep. has a page on Facebook. So that's a little bit more in that realm. Um, but that's kind of what I've been doing in the last six months to help people heal. And that's why I've been making the podcast circuits is because I wrote a day I gone book. Yeah. And yeah. I'm writing we'll more. We'll have to have you back on and just have you talk about it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm working on a book on boundaries right now and people that struggle with people-pleasing behavior. <laughs> we were just talking about our next episode should be on boundaries because I just learned how to set them for the first time. That's outstanding. In my professional life. I've not applied it to my personal life yet. Well, no. Why would you do that? But well, I feel like I'm at a good starting point. Like, literally, I just typed it up. Episode 10, boundaries. <laughs> 
Maybe we should wait till next so, season and we can read your book first. Yeah. <laughs> no, you you do it now because I'm still working on this okay, thing. Right, and it's, and it's gonna be a workbook. Like I'm really big on doing workbooks because I like I like books for purposes, but I think it's really good when you can take the information and apply it to your own situations. And yeah. for people that might not have access to therapists, this is a way to have an access and kind of pull out the main points that you know you need to address and give you a guidepost for where you need to go. So Megan, thank you again. Obviously, I thank feel like you. you already know this. You have a open invitation to come chat with us again because yes. we absolutely adore you. Whenever you want, I'm in. You know that. Perfect. I'll you just message our, you. You are not our default <laughs> therapist. You are a primary <laughs> therapist. <laughs> so thanks so much for Thank that. you again. Yes. All right. And until the next time we have something terrible to talk about. <laughs> and, until until we need, you know, another another uh, professional intake on this because, you know, we're yes. both still figuring many things we out. We are not qualified. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. Oh Thank you God. again, Megan. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening to PS We Have Orders. If you want to reach out to us, please send us a DM on Instagram at PS We Have Orders Podcast, or you can shoot us an email at PS We Have Orders Podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you can leave us a review wherever you listen, we'd really appreciate it. Until next time, guys. of what's the best thing to do are you are you laughing at your dog Perry? did you not see him stick his no did i just see? see a little face pop in he just straight up i'm so sorry is that what he thinks about what we're talking about that this is just the shit yeah <laughs> that's so rude dennis i'm so sorry i'm so Perry, do you need to go handle, handle some stuff? Just keep talking. You two, I'll just mute myself. Just keep going. I'll jump back in here in a minute. Okay, love you. <laughs>